Steve Finney, can you tell us who you are? Briefly, I'm a medical doctor. I have my training in internal medicine and early in my medical career developed an interest in nutrition. So I went back to graduate school and got a PhD in nutritional biochemistry. That was 30 odd years ago. And since then, my primary interests have been in weight management, i.e. obesity, exercise, and the human economy of the various kinds of fats, both essential and non-essential, that we either put in our mouths or make in our bodies. Now, you're a star in a documentary from Canada called My Big Fat Diet, because you helped a whole group change their eating habits to reduce insulin resistance and lose a lot of weight. And you're also the co-author of a book about the Atkins diet that's been updated by you and two other clinician scientists. Partially correct. I had a bit part in my big fat diet, the star with Dr. James Wortman, who is a Canadian physician who was both the driving force behind that and the predominant spokesperson for the project in the documentary. And yes, I'm a co-author on the updated new Atkins book, which came out last March. You're also in the process of creating a new book that's more technical about how to implement a high-fat diet and the reasons to and how it works for different people. That's correct. Dr. Volek, who is one of the co-authors on the Atkins book, he and I felt that we needed to offer more information to people who were interested in the mechanisms of how low-carbohydrate diets worked, how they impacted various medical conditions that people had, such as type 2 diabetes. It offers a more detailed explanation of the workings of the human body when carbohydrates in the diet are restricted. But it's not an overly academic presentation, so it's readable by both a healthcare professional and also by an interested, educated layperson. Now, Steve Finney, are you an athlete? I'm physically active. I've, after high school, I've not been involved in competition athletics. Do you eat a low-carb, high-fat diet? Yes. Guilty as charged. How low-carb and how high-fat? I stay between 25 and 50 grams of carbohydrate per day. I eat a moderate amount of protein. It's not a high-protein diet. I do moderate amount of physical activity. Uh, I, it takes about 2,800 calories a day to keep me stable. And that means if moderate protein was 500 to 600 calories per day and the 25 grams of carbohydrate adds up to 100 calories, that means I'm eating over 2,000 calories per day of fat in order to maintain my body weight. That sounds like at least 60% of your diet is fat, maybe sometimes as high as 80%. I run in the 75 to 80% of energy intake as fat. Well, from what most experts say about physical exercise, you must be in terrible condition. Your muscles must be in shreds because you're not eating the kind of food that automatically puts big stores of glycogen in your muscles. Is that the case? Are you constantly sore and fatigued? No. One of the fascinating things about making the transition from a high-carbohydrate diet, which I used to follow, to a high-fat diet is my primary form of purposeful exercise is bicycle riding. I live here in California where I can ride year-round comfortably. And my typical ride distances range from anywhere from 20 to 60 miles. And I'll do two or three rides a week. I used to classify my rides as one banana rides or two banana ride or three banana ride, depending on whether I was riding 20, 40, or 60 miles. And if I rode 60 miles, I had to take three bananas with me and eat one every hour. Otherwise, I would run out of power and be dragging my tail home or calling for a taxi because I would do what runners call hitting the wall, what bicyclists call bonking. That is, my body would run out of carbohydrate fuel. And even though I had 
tens of thousands of calories of body fat, I couldn't use it efficiently for exercise. And that's where the concept of the necessity for carbohydrate for exercise came from. But if a person goes through a few weeks of giving the body time to adapt to carbohydrate restriction, so you, you do have to kind of pass through this gauntlet of forcing your body to forego carbs as their primary fuel and let the cells change their machinery over, alter their enzyme levels to efficiently burn fat for fuel. Then when I set out on a ride and I have 30 or 40,000 calories of body fat, that's accessible to me. I carry no food now on my bike rides. I carry water or I carry a flavored beverage, but not containing standard sugars, nothing that would raise my insulin level. And I can ride continuously for three hours and go 60 miles without any sense of hunger or food cravings or a drop off in performance. And I ride as well for the last 20 miles coming home as I do for the first 20 miles going out. Well, Steve Finney, maybe you're riding more slowly than you did when you were doing the three banana rides. No, <laughs> I ride as fast now and I'm six years older now than when I last rode eating carbs. And I'm at that point in life where theoretically my performance should be dropping off just because of age. But no, I, I still go out and ride anywhere from 18 to 20 miles per hour. And I can prosecute a ride just as well now as before. And if some young person tries to speed up and go by me on a ride, I can jump and grab their wheel and, and ride with them just as well as I could six, eight, ten years ago. You don't need to have carbs to keep you going. You don't hit a wall the way that you did before when you were eating a lot of carbs. That's correct. My gas tank got a lot bigger when I gave up carbs because we can only store maybe 1,500 calories of carbs. If I'm burning six or 700 calories per hour, if I burned all of the fuel I had as glycogen, every molecule of it, and I was depending predominantly on carbohydrate, that's about two hours of fuel. But if I'm burning the same number of calories per hour and I have 30 or 40,000 calories of fat in my body, I can ride for days. If you have 30 to 40,000 calories of fat on your body, does that mean you're fat? A kilogram of body fat, not a kilogram of fat, but body fat is in cells. And there's cell membranes and there's nucleus and the cytoplasmic components of the cell that have the cell machinery and so on. And so when you take all those into account, a kilogram, which is 2.2 pounds, contains about 7,000 calories of fat. If I have 40,000 calories, that means I have about six kilograms of fat, which means about 12 to 14 pounds of fat on a body that weighs 165 pounds. I'm guessing on the low end, I probably have more than that. But my percentage body fat is probably around 15%. Pretty lean for a guy my age. And even a skinnier person has a fair amount of fat so that they can do this too. Sure. The highly trained marathon runners, for instance, a male marathon runner might be 8% by weight fat. And if the person weighed 150 pounds, you're talking about 12 pounds of body fat on that person. That translates to six kilos, which translates to the minimum number I came up with, which is about 40,000 calories. Are you the only person who can do this? Or do other people who are athletes succeed at using a low-carb diet to be athletes? There are... Many people who have adopted a low-carb lifestyle who anecdotally note that their performance is as good or better as it was when they're eating high carbs. Dr. James Wortman, who we mentioned, the, the star of the My Big Fat Diet, himself developed his understanding of the value of a low-carb diet because he, in his 50s, discovered he had become a type 2 diabetic, a disease that was common in, in his family. 
he switched to a low-carb diet and his diabetes went into complete remission. He happens to be a very avid downhill skier, and he continues to ski at one of the most remarkable ski hills in North America, that is Whistler Mountain, and I have personally seen him ski by people who thought they were really good skiers, nonstop from the top of the mountain to the bottom, which is a 5,000-foot descent. Obviously, he is not physically impaired by his commitment to a low-carbohydrate diet. The reason that I ask about that is because among sports physiologists, it is somewhat standard to say that it's not possible to be an athlete on a low-carb diet. And one reason is because of that substance that we were talking about called glycogen, which is what a starchy substance that is made from sugar and is stored in our cells and can be released as a form of energy in our muscles. It's a storage form of sugar. It goes into muscles and liver. The muscle glycogen is used to power that particular muscle. The liver glycogen can be released into the bloodstream to maintain blood sugar levels, which is necessary to keep the brain happy since the human brain can't burn fat directly. The body's energy economy during exercise includes not just power to the muscle, but also maintaining adequate energy supply to the brain. If the blood sugar level starts to drop, then the brain senses that and you don't feel well. <laughs> That's what runners call hitting the wall and cyclists call bonking. But the studies that have demonstrated our dependence on carbohydrate were all done for durations of less than two weeks of either a high-carb or a low-carb diet. There have been no quality studies done beyond two weeks duration that demonstrated the benefits of a high-carb diet. And I say that because that was one of the few really original pieces of research I've done is I put highly trained bicycle racers on what was patterned basically an Inuit diet. The Inuit are the people who live in the Arctic who uh, traditionally ate a very low carbohydrate, high fat diet. And we kept the bicycle racers on that diet for a total of four weeks. For the first two weeks, they reported that their training was impaired. They didn't feel well. They were struggling with keeping up their weekly miles of training. But after two weeks, that complaint ended, and they actually noted that they felt pretty well, and they certainly functioned very well because I had to ride with them to keep them from stopping and eating something they shouldn't. And we had tested them before they started the low-carb diet when they're eating their habitual much higher carbohydrate intake, measured their peak aerobic power and their endurance time to exhaustion. And then after four weeks of adaptation to the carbohydrate-restricted diet, we tested them in the exact same protocol, again, same power curves on the indoor stationary bicycle, measuring oxygen consumption and quantitated both peak aerobic power and endurance time at a set wattage over a period of time. There was no reduction in their performance once they'd had more than two weeks to adapt to the ketogenic diet. As I did that project, I became curious if there was information written about people who had lived on the Inuit diet. And I read the journals of Arctic explorers, and one of them was a U.S. Army surgeon named Frederick Swatka. And in 1881, he set out from the west coast of Hudson's Bay, traveled overland for 3,000 miles to the shores of the Arctic Ocean and back with a couple of Inuit families in search of the fate of a Royal Navy expedition that had been lost in the Arctic. He returned safe and sound 13 months later, having traveled 3,000 miles overland on foot in excellent health. And in his journal, he wrote, when first thrown wholly upon the diet of the native, one is ill disposed to travel. There is a weakness of the legs, but this passes away within a few weeks, after which prolonged sledge journeys are possible. So it's not just me. 
It wasn't just my bike racers. It has been an observation of people who, when given time to adapt, find that the human body is remarkably flexible in switching from dependency on carbohydrate, which is a very small fuel tank, to ability to access body fat reserves, which is a much larger fuel tank, without impairment in uh, aerobic power or endurance performance. Now, Steve Finney, when you say adaptation that takes two to three weeks, could someone be adapting by eating a low-carb, high-fat diet one day and then eating a regular carb diet the next day and then eating a low-carb diet the next day and just gradually ease into this? We have not studied that formally, but informally when people try that, they just feel lousy. It's a roller coaster ride where one day you have this huge surge in insulin, the next day you deprive your body of the, of the carbohydrate fuel, the next day you again go through the insulin roller coaster. The process of adaptation re- requires a consistent period of time for the body to basically make its peace not with not having carbohydrates and switch its metabolic machinery over. It's our observation measuring biochemical markers of that adaptation that most of the adaptation occurs in the first two weeks, but some of the fine-tuning is still going on out to four to six weeks after that. Now, let's keep eliminating possibilities here. What if somebody's afraid of fat, but they understand that they need to cut back on carbs? The simplest thing to do is to eat a 14-ounce steak at night so that they get energy from the protein of the steak. Are they doing what you recommend? The Inuit were not a literate culture. They did not write down all the tenets of their existence in the Arctic. But people who lived among them and studied them, people who respected their culture and I think accurately recorded it, pointed out that they actually avoided eating lots of lean meat. They actually had a name for an illness that they would notice occurring if they ate too much lean and not enough fat. Apparently, the English translation for that was rabbit illness, and that's because in the springtime, before the ice broke up in the rivers when they could fish for salmon, and before the caribou returned to the tundra where they could hunt them, if they had run short of their winter supply of food, the earliest animals in the spring that they could hunt would be rabbits. But rabbits that had survived the winter in their burrows underground uh, were extremely lean. They had very little fat. And if they hunted the rabbits and ate too much of the rabbit, too much of the lean, it would make them feel sick. So when the Inuit killed a caribou in the springtime, and it well, it had not fattened up from grazing much yet, the Inuit would preferentially eat the tongue, the bone marrow, and the liver, because those are the fattiest parts of the animal. The roasts and the steaks, the things that we consider, you know, the delicacies from our agricultural perspective, those things were saved and fed to the dogs. That was dog meat? That was dog food, because the dog's metabolism is much better suited to live on a higher proportion of protein than human metabolism. The Inuit instinctively understood that they saved the fat for themselves, they gave the lean to the dogs. And that way they avoided this illness, which involved gastrointestinal upset, malaise, weakness, and if it went on too long, apparently it caused problems with kidneys, and they would have severe swelling and inability to excrete extra fluid. Well, how about if instead of eating just the leanest part of meat, what if somebody eats a 14-ounce ribeye steak, or if they eat 14 ounces of chicken with the skin on it. Are they going to avoid this problem with the rabbit fever, or is that still too much protein? A lightly marbled steak is 
about 50-50 in terms of energy, not by weight, but in terms of energy content, about 50-50 protein and fat. If you eat a heavily marbled steak, that's two times as much fat as protein. And chicken with the skin, dark meat's going to be about equal portions of fat and protein, but the white meat is going to be more protein than fat, even with the skin on. When people first go on a low-carb diet, let me just turn a slight corner here, many of them do it not because they want to go out and exercise hard, but because they've tried other diets, they haven't worked, and they figured they'd try a low-carb diet for weight loss. And that was the type of diet that made Robert Atkins famous because thousands of people came to see him in his clinical office in New York City, and he put them on a diet that was moderate in protein, very low in carbohydrate, containing a fair amount of vegetables and even some low-carbohydrate fruits, and his people lost lots of weight. Now, when you go on a weight loss ketogenic or low-carb diet, you can eat half fat, half protein, but you only eat half as much as your body needs to burn each day. The other half comes from inside, comes from your love handles, from your hips, or wherever. And so if a person is burning 2,000 calories a day, and they're eating 1,000 calories a day, half of which is protein, 125 grams of protein would be 500 calories, which is enough to preserve lean body mass and maintain function. The other 500 calories of intake per day comes from fat. It looks like it's a high-protein diet, not much fat. But the reason the scale goes down every day is because you're burning 1,000 calories every day from internal body stores. But if that person stays on the diet long enough, let's say the person loses 30 pounds because it ends of whatever size clothing they, they hope to get into, and decide to stay on low carb in order to be weight stable. They don't increase the protein intake. They shouldn't increase carbohydrate intake very much. What they need to do is learn to eat a considerable amount of fat as a source of energy, which their body is now very efficient at burning. Well, okay, so let's think about an athlete. If an athlete, someone who doesn't need to lose weight, is eating a 14-ounce ribeye steak, is that too much protein? Depends on the person's height and weight. Typically, what we recommend is if you take the person's height and from that calculate their what we call reference body weight. It's what used to be called ideal body weight, but it's a reference based on the person's height. The amount of protein you eat depends on how much muscle you have to maintain. So a tall, muscular male would need more protein to maintain lean body mass than a petite woman would. He's a tall guy. He's pretty muscular. He lifts weights. He's not as tall as a basketball player, six feet, maybe a little less. Okay, so if someone, a male who's six feet tall, their reference weight would be about 80 kilograms, plus or minus a few. And then what we recommend is that people on a low-carb diet, they get a minimum of 1.5 grams of protein per reference kilogram. So that would be 80 times 1.5, which would be 120 grams. That's the low end, and it can go as high as 2 to 2.5 Grams. Well, let's say two grams per kilo. So that would be 160 grams of protein per day. Okay, 14 ounce steak. Each ounce of prepared steak will contain about seven grams of protein. So that 14 ounce steak would be just a bit shy of 100 grams of protein. If the person's intake should be somewhere between 120 and 150, that steak represents more than half of their daily protein need. So if the person had a couple eggs and a, and a couple slices of bacon for breakfast, which would be about 25 grams of protein, 
and some tuna salad with chopped up celery on a bed of lettuce for lunch, and then they had that steak for dinner, that would add up to a reasonable amount of protein for that individual. So the steak that size would be tolerable. As long as the person felt satisfied by their morning and midday meals and didn't feel that they were being deprived of energy during the day if they were saving up that much of their allotted daily protein for the evening meal. That would be too much protein for me. I'm, what, about five foot seven. I'm not an athlete. See, there's my muscles in my arm. But also, because I have a very weak pancreas, I don't have a lot of room for having extra protein calories that might be converted into sugar, which is what happens with protein if there's too much. So if that happens, it would push my sugar in my blood up, at least some. So I know that Mary Gannon, who's another expert on protein metabolism, would suggest that people can have far less protein per kilogram of lean body mass than you're suggesting, because so much of the body's protein can be recycled and reused again. While you talking about athletes are suggesting a fairly high but not super high amount of protein, there are reference points that are even lower. When we fed the bike racers in my study 30 years ago, we did not try different protein levels. We kind of bootlegged the resources to do that study, so we had to pick one number. And I picked the value in terms of grams of protein per kilogram reference body weight that was published in a 1930 paper about an Arctic explorer who had lived among Inuit and who then consented to be locked up in a research hospital in New York City for the better part of a year in order to be studied while eating the diet of similar composition to what he'd eaten in the Arctic. He ate 1.7 grams of protein per kilo, and so that's what we fed by bike racers. They were not diabetic. They were highly trained athletes. It allowed their bodies to adapt to the state we call nutritional ketosis, that is the moderate level of blood ketones that the body inherently makes as a fuel supply for the brain and other tissues when carbohydrate intake is, is limited. They had appropriate levels of ketones, their body energy metabolism, which we analyzed through multiple tests, appeared to be very well adapted to that level of protein. It did not cause any kidney problems in those individuals. Again, it depends on the size of the person. It depends on what their metabolic profile is. Athletes, because they're even when you're on a low-carb diet, your bodies accumulate some glycogen from recovering some of the carbon from the protein molecules, and the body makes that into glucose and can store it as glycogen. They use it when they exercise, and then they rebuild it uh, the next day or two after they've had a period of intense exercise. Well, and so you're thinking that it's okay to eat a fair amount of protein, as long as it's not too much and as long as you have a lot of fat, and this is okay for an athlete. Not too much protein, but not really super little. You can get by with a moderate amount. That's our impression. That's explained in a chapter in the new Atkins book, and it's explained in detail in the upcoming book we have coming out, because it's a question we get from many people. There is a misunderstanding that Aboriginal people, whether they were the Maasai who lived as herders in Central Eastern Africa, whether it was the Native Americans who lived on the buffalo and nothing but the buffalo, they lived a nomadic, non-farming lifestyle, or the Inuit who had no opportunities to farm. Plains Indian and the Maasai lived adjacent to people who chose to farm. And these people could have farmed if they wanted to, but chose not to. Their selected lifestyle was to eat meat and fat. They were able to eat that diet that didn't include agricultural carbohydrates. They uh, were very strong, grew very tall in the case of the Maasai and the Native Americans of the Great Plains, and were not impaired by that level of fat intake.
Well, you're pretty confident that they ate a lot of fat, a moderate amount of protein, and as little carb as possible on purpose. And these were great athletes of other times, the Maasai, the Inuit, the Plains Native Americans, and they did fine. But we're in this modern science era. We've talked a little bit about glycogen stores, and let's talk a little bit more about them now because the concern among many sports physiologists today is that a high-fat diet and a low-carb diet will basically shred the muscles in someone because it means that the stores of glycogen in their muscles will be too low. Every athlete does need to sprint sometimes, or at least most of them do, and that glycogen fuel is a better fuel for sprinting. I've heard sports physiologists say that if you don't have enough glycogen, you will actually injure your muscles. It will be like taking a piece of paper and shredding it because the muscles won't have enough fuel to prepare themselves. Well, that's a, a, a wonderfully graphic image, but it has no role to play in physiology. There is no, quote, shredding of muscles that occurs when a certain fuel runs out. If the muscle's exhausted, you stop. There are occasionally conditions that occur with excessive physical performance, which leads to muscle damage. That's called rhabdomyolysis, death of muscle cells and breakdown of the muscle cells. And the protein breakdown products flow through the bloodstream and can actually cause severe damage to the kidneys. And this can be a life-threatening condition. Sometimes soldiers in training get this when they're pushed beyond their limits in a training scenario, uh, military conditions. Occasionally you see it in someone who doesn't adequately train trying to do a marathon, but it is not caused by a lack of glycogen. There are now a group of athletes who do ultra-marathon endurance events, particularly mountain trail races that range in distance from 50 to 100 miles. A major problem with people on trail runs when they eat a high-carbohydrate diet in preparation is they have to eat carbohydrates all along the way. And every hour they have to eat, because if you're doing a 100-mile run, we have one in California that runs from Lake Tahoe over the Sierras and down to the west side, the foothills on the west side. It's 100 miles, and a typical winner will finish the race in 17 hours, start to finish. This is a nonstop race. There aren't any breaks along the way to sleep. The gun goes off, and the first person across the finish line wins. It's 100 miles. It's over 20,000 feet of climbing and 20,000 total feet of descent because it goes up and down, up and down, along over the hills. Now some people who are doing these races are doing it on low carb. They prepare on low carb, and they use a very modest amounts of carbohydrates and beverages once they're underway. These people tend to start fairly slow in the race, like they'll be in about the middle of the pack at the halfway point. For whatever reason, in the second half of the race, these runners are now starting realizing they can eat up the field from the back because they have this sustained fuel supply and they're not depleted. They're able to continue running. And there have been a couple of women in particular who have been extremely good at this. And not only do they win the women's segment of the race, but a couple of women recently running on low-carbohydrate diets have placed high in the men's fields, which is a, a new experience. And people are wondering, what the heck are they up to? Of course, they're not saying much because it's their secret weapon. Their secret weapon. Are they sprinting sometimes, or are they just going at a nice steady pace? This is a race where you can't sprint. You have to hold a extremely temperate pace because you're going to be doing it for 17 to 20 hours. Perhaps a low-carb diet is most suited to something where you have a cruising speed and you aren't sprinting because isn't the fuel for sprinting something like glycogen and 
the fuels created by eating and burning fat are, are not really high-octane fuel. They're more cruising fuel. Right. But what if your rate of glycogen use could be cut by a factor of four? And you started out with half as much glycogen as the person next to you has been eating a high carbohydrate diet. Who has the better glycogen supply? The person whose rate of glycogen use is a quarter as much and their tank is half full, or the person whose glycogen supply is four times as much and their tank is full. Uh, and those are actual numbers because our bike racers, we actually did muscle biopsies with a, a needle and took bits of muscle out of their thigh muscle and measured glycogen before and after. And on the same duration of riding at the exact same intensity, their rate of glycogen utilization was one-fourth as much. Meaning that they started with a lower amount of glycogen than somebody eating a lot of carbohydrates, but they used the glycogen they had so efficiently that by the end of the time that they were exercising, their stores were as good or perhaps better than somebody who had been fueled by carbohydrates? That's correct. And the other thing that will happen with keto adaptation, with this process over a number of weeks where the body changes the its metabolic set to, to improve its ability to manage its fuel supply, is that the body becomes an extremely effective scavenger for the various breakdown products can be used to, used to make glycogen. Now, a lot of athletes and trainers fear a chemical compound called lactate. Lactate is what your muscles make out of glycogen when you're sprinting. It collects in the muscle, maybe. It gets into the bloodstream. It is said to be a factor causing fatigue and muscle pain. It's the thing that makes you breathe hard after you sprint, because when the lactate goes in the blood, it stimulates your brain through a change in the pH of the blood to breathe hard. So that makes you go, <laughs> that's the, the, the pH lactate effect. When I sprint now on my bicycle, if I'm chasing some younger person I don't want to let go by, I breathe harder, but I never hyperventilate. I don't huff and puff ever because I don't have that lactate surge. Part of it is I don't make as much, but the other is my muscles have become extremely efficient at taking it back up and using it to make glycogen. And that was discovered by some Scandinavian scientists probably 15 years ago that uh, the muscles that you're not using during exercise actually become a, a sponge for lactate. And they actually take your other muscles, take up the lactate and make it into glycogen. Your liver can take it up and make it into glycogen. You can use the skeletons of the amino acids from the breakdown of protein to make glycogen. And so, if anything, a keto-adapted athlete is probably much more effective at recovering and rebuilding the glycogen stores they need. An example of that is a study done in Arctic sled dogs by a scientist from Oklahoma State University named Dr. Mike Davis. He's a doctor of veterinary medicine. And he did a study where he took a couple teams of racing sled dogs up in the Yukon, and he raced them 100 miles a day for five days in a row, which is basically half an Iditarod. The Iditarod's about 1,000 miles, and the winning time is usually 10 days. So they did, kind of on purpose for research, a half Iditarod distance, but they did it from the same point. They just went around the same 100-mile loop every day for five days in a row. And he fed the dogs a high-fat, moderate-protein, low-carbohydrate diet. Just what you like to eat. The parts of the caribou I would give them if I was trying to save the fattier parts for myself. In any case, at the end of five days, 
he did uh, muscle biopsies on the dogs and measured glycogen before they started. At the end of five days of racing 100 miles a day, these dogs are pulling a sled 100 miles a day, five days in a row, being fed adequate calories to support them with this low-carb, moderate, you know, moderate-intermediate protein, high-fat diet. At the end of five days, they had more glycogen in their muscles than they did when they started. The challenge of doing the exercise meant that when they're lying down for two or three hours in a, in a rest period, they were sucking up every little bit of whatever they could find and putting it right back in the muscles as glycogen and doing it much more efficiently than they had when they were fed a high-carb diet. Well, do you think that if their trainer had said, oh, these dogs are working so hard, Let's give them a few starchy biscuits because they're working so hard, meaning carb calories. Would that have been okay or would that have just messed up all of their adaptation? We don't know because I don't know that that's been done. But based on our human experience, the human body loves consistency. If you've been feeding yourself carbs, you have to keep feeding yourself carbs to maintain the same sense of well-being that comes from that sugar surge and, and not running out of energy and not being put in a position of bonking uh, if you push too hard and don't eat enough. If you flip the coin over and go to the low-carb, high-fat side and you give your body a few weeks of adaptation, that's what your body wants to get. And our experience is that even a transient break in the low-carb diet is an uncomfortable experience. When a person's adapted to low carb, their body is adapted to excreting salt. The kidneys are very efficient at getting rid of salt and water, which is, again, why people who are water overloaded, salt and water kind of bloated when they go on a low carb diet, can lose 10 pounds in the first week. They don't lose 10 pounds of body fat. They lose two or three pounds of body fat, and they lose six or eight pounds of water uh, because of the salt excretion. But if you break the keto-adapted state, say you went out and you ran a 10K distance, and you want to reward yourself. So you come home and eat a big plate of pasta. The next morning you wake up, you're going to feel like the Michelin man or the Michelin woman, just all swollen up because every bit of salt and water is suddenly being trapped in your body because your kidneys are shut off the salt excretion. And the scale may go up six pounds. When we refed my bike racers at the end of the study, we didn't try to convince them they should be on low-carb long-term. In fact, we didn't know much about the body's economy of saturated fats and cholesterol and inflammation and all the things we've studied in the meantime. So we encouraged them to just stay on it for the time when we were studying them. Then when they came off, we wanted to transition back to a carbohydrate-containing diet. And these guys have been locked up in a metabolic research ward and been under 24-7 observation for, at that point, five weeks I would take them out to any restaurant, treat them to a meal. And I, I saw one guy eat a like a 16-inch diameter deep dish pizza. The whole thing. That's a few carbohydrates there. It would be about 2,000 calories. The next morning, the guy weighed six pounds more than he weighed the day before. He didn't gain six pounds of body fat. His kidney shut off salt excretion. And every bit of salt and water he had that night you know, just stayed in him. And it takes about two or three days after that for the body to settle down and get rid of that over-retention of water. It sounds like the adaptation back to a carbohydrate diet is much quicker than it is adapting to a low-carb diet. And these athletes, they were so fit and so capable, they could choose which one they wanted to do, be a carb-eating body or a not-carb-eating body. They could do that, but what about... What about somebody like who's a diabetic who 
your word for it is somebody who's carbohydrate intolerant. They have extra reasons, especially if they're an athlete, to explore this possibility. But you caution that there's some ways that you can be miserable, even if you're eating low carb and you're trying to adapt to it. I know that we'll talk about salt, but there's another one called magnesium. Which one do you want to talk about first? Best one to talk about is actually the one that's most controversial, and that's salt. As I mentioned, when the human body adapts to low carb, the kidneys become very efficient at excreting salt. That's a good thing if you happen to have high blood pressure and you want to get some fluid out of your circulation, or if you are bloated and fluid overloaded, that's fine. Um, but there is a certain amount of salt our body needs. You know, if you ever bit your lip and you tasted the blood, it's salty. That's because blood in the body contains salt. That's the fluid outside cells. The fluid inside cells contains a similar mineral called potassium. Our body basically has two separate zones, the sodium zone, which is the fluid outside cells, and the potassium zone, which is inside cells, inside muscles and, and the liver cells and kidney cells and heart cells and those things. If you have too little sodium, if your body's gotten rid of too much, particularly if you try to exercise and you, quote, warm up, warming up means you start pumping blood to your skin to help cool off. That means you, if you're exercising, you have to have blood to your muscles to keep the muscles powered with fuel and oxygen. And then you have to have blood going to the skin to cool you off. You're trying to serve, the blood's trying to serve two masters. And if it's got, if there's too little of it, the body runs out. It falls short. And people who experience that feel lightheaded, dizzy, and intensely fatigued. And I've had people tell me, you know, gee, you know, I tried that low-carb diet of yours, and, you know, I just, it was great seeing the scale go down, but every time I stood up, I was lightheaded and dizzy. And if I took a hot shower, I would feel like I was going to pass out. And if I went out and tried to exercise, within five or ten minutes of starting to exercise, I had to sit down on the curb because I was just completely washed out. I mean, that diet's worthless. And I said, well, did you try taking a cup of bouillon twice a day or a cup of homemade meat broth, which is what I prefer people make because it's naturally what the uh, Aboriginal people did? And they said, oh, I didn't want to do that because I, I know salt's bad for me. Too much salt's bad for you, but the right amount is necessary. I had a neighbor who was a very vigorous bicycle rider. He was president of the local road riding club. And he literally, three days later, hugged me and said, You've given me my, my power back. It's because if all you need is two grams of sodium a day, supplementing a modest amount that you might have in your food. That's, that's not a high salt diet, but it has to be timed within a maximum of three or four hours, preferably one hour before you go out and try to do some vigorous physical activity. That then gives you enough physiological reserve that your circulation can expand to support exercise. I'm going to think for a moment about how much it is, because you said two grams, and I'm thinking that's like a quarter teaspoon of salt, maybe for the whole day adding an extra half a teaspoon of salt. But you say that that little bit more that you add needs to be added time for a few hours before you actually go out for something rigorous for exercise. It's not like do this before you go to sleep at night. Do it where you time it drinking water with salt in it or some liquid, where it will be time for having settled into your body. So not just before you go out and exercise, give it an hour or an hour and a half or two hours before you go out and exercise for all this to happen. That's correct. The sodium you ate yesterday is gone by today. So if you want to take 
bullion before you go to go to bed. It depends what exercise you're going to do in bed, but it's not going to help you tomorrow. So if you get up in the morning and you're typically you're a morning runner and you go for an hour run between 6.30 and 7.30 in the morning, you know, get up at 6, have a cup of warm broth containing a gram of sodium. It's easily absorbed and, and you know, it's not going to fill you up or cause you any problem. And then go for your run. You'll feel infinitely better if you prep with that modest priming dose for the circulatory pump. You know, this intrigues me because I like to play tennis and I'm somebody who has a very small pancreas. When I play tennis and I'm sprinting at the beginning of the tennis match, the first set is usually my worst one because then I'm kind of all iffy and fuzzy. And it takes a while before I settle into it, and then I can have much more stamina than other people. Well, I know that as my energy's getting up, my blood sugars are going up 30, 40, 50, sometimes 100 points. But the other thing is whatever's happening to my blood sugars, that first set is tough for me. That inclines me to think in terms of my energy levels, that if I were to have some salt about an hour and a half before I go out to play tennis, it could be that that first set, I might have better energy. That's very possibly true. It probably wouldn't affect my blood sugars, though, because I'm doing some sprinting in a body that really doesn't have a lot of reserve for making insulin. So my body naturally is creating its own sugars or releasing them. And so my blood sugars will go up. That's lactate coming out of your cells, being picked up by your, by your liver, made into glucose and sent back to your cells. It's called the Cori cycle. Since I don't have a lot of insulin, that Cori cycle, when it happens, my body goes, what the heck are we going to do with this sugar stuff? And it has a little trouble catching up. When we looked at my bike racers, we did blood tests that before they started exercising, 15 minutes into the exercise, an hour and a half into the exercise, and then just before they finished, when they said, I'm exhausted, I'm going to quit, and said, wait, wait, because we had an IV line, we took a blood sample, then five minutes after. The highest blood sugar on the low-carb diet was 15 minutes into exercise. So even in the athletes, there was a measurable and statistically significant rise in blood sugar in response to the initiation of exercise. So it's a normal response, you're saying, is that everybody, every athlete, their bodies respond by raising blood sugars for the first hour. Here's a graphic. This here is blood glucose. You can see that on the high carb diet, when they first started out, the blood sugar went way up and then down and down quite low, actually. And then it doesn't go down anywhere near as low as it went over here. This is the people who depleted on the high carb. These are people who much better regulation of blood sugar during the low carb diet. It looks like less of a roller coaster on the low carb diet, and it's also less of a fall. It's a more stable zone that it's in. It's a much more even flow of fuel. I noticed that even though my, my sugars, if I'm doing a singles tennis match, they'll go up to 170, 180 during the match. And But once I'm settled into that, then I can usually outlast anybody else and sprint faster than people at my putsy level of 3.0 tennis. I'm actually better off. But most people, the key thing for them is salt. For someone like me, I don't have to take that salt. At least I haven't thought that I did. The nutrient that I've noticed that I need is the magnesium. What I would suggest is there's a recipe in the Atkins book from last March, for meat broth, because most people don't like chopping up their own chickens and so on. I just said, take the whole chicken, buy a bargain basement chicken, and put a chicken in a pot with one quart of water for every pound of chicken, and then simmer it for about six hours. 
and all the good stuff I think you want has come out of the chicken, so throw away the solids. Or maybe if you have a dog, you might feed that to your dog, because the really good stuff is in the broth. Now, I can buy chickens for a dollar a pound at my local warehouse grocery store. I get a little over a quart of broth per pound of chicken, and I use two cups a day. So that means the price of my broth is 50 cents a day for two cups. I would not bat an eyelash to go down to my local custom coffee place and get a coffee beverage for $3.25 and be happy for the pick-me-up from the coffee. So it's not a waste. It's not expensive. That broth, when you make it that way, if you take that broth, I have them skim the fat off and throw it away because I don't think the chicken fat from factory chickens is all that good for us, by the way. Even you don't like chicken factory fat. I don't like factory chicken fat. Say it 10 times fast, factory chicken fat. Partially because it's exposed to heat for oxygen for a long period of time, and any polyunsaturates in there are going to go rancid as a result of that cooking process. So I skim the fat off and throw it away. But when it's in the refrigerator, that turns to a gel. It's like jello. And the reason is you've gotten so much of the protein, the low molecular weight proteins, out of the cells and uh, the skin and, the, and so on, that it's actually got as much protein per cup as a whole egg. Well, that tells me something else, that that counts as a protein source. Yes, it does. And you also get potassium out of the muscles and magnesium out of the muscles, and you get calcium and phosphorus out of the bones. It's an extremely nutrient-rich mixture. I have people put one teaspoon of salt per quart into the pot when they make it. That gives you that half teaspoon per day or one quarter teaspoon per cup, which is the numbers you very accurately calculated in your head there a few minutes ago. And so you get the right amount of salt, you get some extra potassium, you get the magnesium. Those things in combination are extremely good for our muscles. It also feels to me like it's good for my gastrointestinal tract. It's a positive reinforcement of taking it day after day after day. So good for me that I look forward to, not intellectually, but just viscerally, it appeals to me. For somebody who's depleted in magnesium, you also suggest that they might take a magnesium supplement until their cells catch up on their magnesium needs. And I tried to find the slow-release magnesium that you suggested. I couldn't find it at Whole Foods. They pointed me to a new product that they have I think it's called Calm. It's basically magnesium that when you add hot water to it, it fizzes for a little while, and then you add more water and you drink it. And I'm guessing that that, if you have that two or three times a day, that kind of counts as a slow-release magnesium. What do you think? Magnesium is a really fascinating mineral. By the way, I class it as my least favorite nutrient. It's not that I don't like it, but it's my least favorite because, it, like Rodney Dangerfield, it never gets any respect. You know? <laughs> Calm is a good name. I don't know if it's a good product. But when muscles have a reduced level of magnesium, again, 98% of the free magnesium in our body is inside our muscles. That's say free magnesium because there's a fair amount of magnesium tied up in the minerals in our bones. We think of bones calcium, right? But actually one-tenth of the positive charged particles in bone is magnesium. The other nine out of 10 is calcium. So there's a fair amount of magnesium in bone, but it's not releasable. It doesn't turn over very fast. So if you need to get some in your muscles quickly, the bone isn't any help at all. Okay. So when the muscles become magnesium depleted, they become twitchy. And people will notice what we call fasciculations, just little twitchings of the muscles sometimes. And then a whole muscle may twitch. That's called a cramp, where it actually locks up. And 
frequent muscle cramps, either particularly after exercise or at nighttime, is for me a very strong sign of magnesium depletion. Now you say, well, just go to your doctor, get a blood test, find out what your magnesium level is. The problem is because 99% is supposed to be in your muscles, the blood level is not a good measure of the body's status. Oh, so this is an example of something where the amount of the magnesium inside the cell itself, where it's hard to measure, is determining what's happening with muscle cramps. That's correct. So the place where I buy the slow-release magnesium is actually at my local Costco warehouse store but they don't put it out in the general shopping area. They have it in the pharmacy area because they're not allowed by the supplier to sell it as a bulk item. It's not prescription, but you have to ask the pharmacist for it. There was a proprietary patented product called Slow Mag, but that's off patent now. And so two other manufacturers that I know of make a generic version that's exactly the same and costs much less. One is called Mag Delay, and the other is called Mag 64. And the 64 is because there's 64 milligrams of magnesium per tablet. The reason why I like the slow release is that the human gastrointestinal tract is not good at dealing with a lot of magnesium in one dose. When it gets a, a large dose of magnesium, its natural instinct is to dump it. That's why Milka magnesia is a laxative, because you put Milka magnesia in your upper gut, and the first thing the body wants to do is rush it through. So if you use a slow-release magnesium, again, your point, Shelley, is using a small amount frequently, but if you took three slow mag pills, which is about 200 milligrams of magnesium. One clue that someone's taking too much magnesium, or at least in too big a hit at a time, would be diarrhea. That's correct. That would be a likely clue that it's either too much magnesium total in the day or else too big a hit. It isn't spread out over enough time. Um, but interestingly, when it comes to salt, you say, try to time it when you're going to be exercising because that's where you're going to need it the most. Sodium only has one positive charge. So it moves rapidly into cells. But magnesium has two positive charges, like calcium. And absorption of divalent cations, big name, two charged molecules is much, much slower. And so the timing is very different uh, in terms of how the body handles potassium or sodium, both of which have one charge, as opposed to magnesium with two. I'm going to switch to a full-fledged type 1 diabetic who's injecting insulin, who is trying to switch over to a true low-carb diet and is having some trouble with energy. I asked him for some details on what his status is right now. He said that until now he's eaten 100 grams or more of carbs a day. He switched down to 50 grams of carbs a day. Right now, his blood sugars are ranging between 170 or 180 and about the low 90s. That's where his range of blood sugars is. He said that that is better than it used to be. There's less swings of high and low right now, which would make sense. He said that his hemoglobin A1C, having started this, is around 5.9. So he's keeping a pretty good control right now. He said the one thing that is awful is that he used to run eight miles every morning. And right now he gets out there and he can barely walk. He feels like he needs to go to sleep at 9.30 after having had a good night's sleep. Now you're nodding your head as though you go, aha, here's some possibilities. What do you think? The first question in terms of the exercise tolerance is, is he drinking broth? I asked him about his salt intake. 
I think that he replied to me that right now it's 500 milligrams. That sounds like it's about three and a half grams lower than you suggest for the day. People have developed such a phobia for salt. I say, well, you know, you need to take a cup of, of broth or bouillon within an hour of exercising. Oh, I'm eating plenty of salt. But very frequently they're not. And the reason why I prescribe the amount of salt per cup is that's the amount you need to basically prime your circulatory pump in preparation for exercise. The second thought is if he went from 100 grams to 50 grams, I don't know how long ago that was. About two or three weeks ago. Those are his two or three weeks of adaptation. And 50 may not be low enough for this gentleman. You know, he might need to come down to 30 or 40 to get fully adapted. But he's still in that Frederick Swatka, the Arctic explorer, who said it, it takes at least two weeks when one goes fully onto the diet of the native, okay? That's his adaptation window. He probably, because of his such wide swings in sugar that he had because he's a type 1 diabetic before, the therapeutic range for him for carbohydrate is probably going to be narrower. So he might need actually less, less carbohydrate. I mentioned Dr. James Wortman. He's a type 2 diabetic, not a type 1 diabetic. He tracks his hemoglobin A1C very closely. Uh, and he's been under 5.5 since 2002. Okay, so it's going nine years now. He's found he can't eat more than 25 grams of total carbohydrates per day without noticing a change in his glucose control. So he is in complete remission. He has normal blood sugar, normal hemoglobin A1C. His blood lipids are, are stellar. He's lean. He's fit. He is in remission for his diabetes only when he stays well under 50 grams, more 30, 25 or 30 or under, to have that level of that quality of control. Now, I, you, you know and I know, but we'll just mention that type 2 diabetics are extremely difficult to get even close to normal hemoglobin A1Cs because their disease is insulin resistance, not lack of insulin. And we don't have good medicines to resolve insulin resistance. Very often we'll see a poorly controlled type 2 diabetic who has a hemoglobin A1C of 9, and we're happy if we get it down to 7 with really vigorous control. You mean medications? Two different pills by mouth twice a day, plus frequent injections of insulin throughout the day. The typical diabetic treatment through the medical community. Yes, the best we can do in terms of tight diabetic control. And unfortunately, when we get really tight diabetic control and type 2 diabetics, it makes them gain weight. Because we're forcing that sugar into cells made into fat and stored. What happens when you take away the carbs is you take the pressure off the system. In type 2 diabetics, their insulin resistance dramatically improves. It gets better. Their blood sugar gets under better control. Their blood lipids come down and they lose weight. So all the things work in the right direction as opposed to forcing medication to clear sugar out of the blood, but it has to be stored somewhere. The type 2 diabetic disease is the body can't handle sugar well. It's a carbohydrate intolerance and you see that to some degree, type 1s as well. So, again, the suggestion for this gentleman is give it some time. You can make him a pot of broth and give him some, because boys don't cook, right? Give it time, broth within an hour before he goes and exercises, and try getting the carbs even lower, 
in order to uh, give the body even a, a better opportunity to adapt. I like to see blood sugars stay under 150 all the time. And in fact, under 100 is okay with you too. Well, no, we'll see postprandially when after you've eaten. You know, all of us, if we eat a, a, a big pasta meal, our sugars go way up, you know, may go as high as 200 transiently. We just want to back down within two hours and we say that's normal. But that's this huge spike. So if you if you gave your, this runner friend of yours, if he had, you know, eight ounce steak and a large salad and buttered green beans or something like that, you know, he might have a sugar that goes up to 150 in response to the meal just from the gluconeogenesis going from the digestion and, and clearing of the protein. Postprandial swings are, are normal in the same way that swings on during exercise are normal. We just want to keep the magnitude tamped down like we saw in those bike racers. So the body has a much more even supply of fuel. You know, it sounds like when somebody who decides to adapt to a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, it's a very firm commitment. You can't really do this one halfway. You have to really do it because if you don't, then it takes enough time for the body to adapt that you never get there. You never get to the adaptation if you play around the edges of how you eat. You've got to really eat a low-carb diet before you can find out whether it works for you or not. This is an island of safety. Getting a low-carb diet right is not just cutting out sugars and flour and white stuff from the diet. It's finding the right mix of nutrients. For me, it's been a 30-year odyssey of reading what other wise people have written and trying to research some of this myself. But you can't do it part-time. The analogy I use is I live in California, and people say, should I stay in California for my vacation or should I go to Hawaii? And I'm not sure. Maybe I'll go halfway and see what it's like halfway. You know, you fly your plane halfway there, it's not going to be a fun vacation because you end up landing in the water, which has sharks in it. So eating half low carb and half high carb is kind of like trying to swim in the water halfway between California and Hawaii. You've got to go all the way there and give your body time to adapt and respect your body's ability to make that adaptation. And once you've got it, treasure it. Because if you give the body one large dose of carbohydrates, it can't ignore those carbohydrates because you've got about two teaspoons of sugar floating around in your blood. If you eat the equivalent of 20 teaspoons of sugar in a large carbohydrate meal, that is a huge embarrassment to your body. It's got to gear up minutes to hours and tuck that away. Otherwise, it would make anyone into a acute diabetic. Meaning that it could make you very sick. It could do all kinds of damage to your body very quickly if those sugars just kept floating around. Normal blood sugars in the American terms, in milligrams per deciliter, is between 60 and 100. When your blood sugar is up, quote, 100, you've got about two teaspoons of sugar floating around in your blood, two teaspoons of glucose, okay? If you eat five or 600 calories of carbohydrate, and that's digested and gets into the bloodstream, but your body isn't able to move it into your liver and into your muscle cells really quickly, your level is going to go to 300, 400, 500. That's enough to kill some people. It's enough to cause your physiology to be, be extremely embarrassed. I've spent six years being low carb. If I eat a large carbohydrate meal, I wouldn't die. But my body would completely throw away that those weeks and months of adaptation in order to deal with this huge load of, of sugar suddenly coming on board. No big surprise that I would feel lousy for a number of days after that, and I would have lost my low-carb adaptation. Uh, and it would take me a couple weeks to get it back. So once you've made the adaptation, once you've 
made the commitment, put in the time, you treasure the keto adapted state. 